want you to think for a moment about a time when something that you did exceeded your expectations. Maybe they were low, maybe not, but something that you did exceeded your expectations. It was just better than you could even have imagined. Kind of like having 30 kids on stage and, and everything going really smooth and no one tripped and no one fell and everyone was smiling. Think about a time when something exceeded your expectations. I remember being given a handful of Dodger tickets once and sort of reluctantly going and I was still in seminary and so I stuffed my pockets with granola bars because I couldn't afford a hot dog at the baseball game. I had to be given the tickets in the first place and show up at the baseball game and we're led to our seats and we start going downstairs and and further down and every time we get to a spot where we can go out and and go sit the attendant says no 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 keep going keep going and so we go down and down and down and down until we we feel like we're in the basement or in the wrong spot and then we walk out and we're flat eye level with the playing field and we we walk out and, and kind of bewildered and again checking our tickets making sure we're in the right spot and we find our row and it's a big lazy boy chair so we're down at field level, that exceeded our expectations. A big lazy boy at a baseball game, that exceeded our expectations. We're 30 feet from home plate, that exceeded our expectations. And then our host shows up and says, did you guys get dinner already? I mean, we must have looked startled because he took it upon himself to, to show us where just an extravagant buffet filled with things that I've never seen before and can't pronounce. And so for... Seven innings, he cut us off after seven innings. Um, for seven innings, we, we gorged on food. And needless to say, I threw the granola bars away. But the whole night just ex- exceeded my expectations. And so as we get into joy, as we continue with these great Advent themes, I want to put before you each week that there's more in the Lord than what we realize, that life in Him will exceed our expectations. Uh, and the problem is, is that many of us are too easily satisfied watching a baseball game at home eating crusty granola bars when there's a buffet of his joy, a buffet of his peace, a buffet of his hope, a buffet of his love available to us. So what's joy? Here's a few definitions that I came across. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller describes it this way, delight in God, delight in God and his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Another pastor, John Piper, describes it this way, a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit, right? Produced by the Holy Spirit, not something of my manufacturing, produced by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit causes us to see the beauty of Christ in His Word and in our lives, in the world. If you kind of conflate those together, we have a pervasive, far-reaching, deep and abiding emotion of gratefulness and satisfaction produced by the Holy Spirit as he helps us delight in God and in our salvation. Now notice there was nothing in there about uh, a perfect marriage or a happy family or timely mortgage payments, right? Produced by the Holy Spirit as he helps us, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Now, if, if joy is possible, that is pervasive, right? If joy is possible, that it lingers even when circumstances uh, don't go the way that we want, even when there's pain and suffering and brokenness and addiction and depression and loss, if there's, it's possible to have joy like that, we might expect that the enemy would put some sort of counterfeit before us to try to get us to chase that and deter us and distract us from the Lord. And so we're familiar with this counterfeit idea, Counterfeit is a 
globally is a trillion dollar industry. It's not just sunglasses and purses. 9% of uh, all counterfeits are pharmaceuticals and self-wellness products. 9%. $90 billion worth of false fake pills coming in and out of, of different countries. And, and that's, I mean, that's dangerous, isn't it? Pills that are mislabeled, pills that are too strong, pills that are not strong enough, pills that have all sorts of strange things in them. Counterfeit pill can be fatal, can it? Pastor Tim Keller adds this to his definition of joy. He adds a definition of counterfeit joy. He says it's elation, excitement, satisfaction that comes with the with blessings, not the blesser. Uh, more concretely, he says, mood swings based on circumstances. And what I want us to see today is that the Lord's joy is bigger, bigger than our circumstances. Counterfeit joy, happiness in circumstances, happiness in good news, is not joy in the Lord. It's not joy in the gospel. Counterfeit pills can be fatal. Counterfeit joy can be spiritually fatal uh, because it causes God's people to miss what he has for us as we pursue a cheap imitation. It does little to nothing. Counterfeit joy does little to nothing to show Christ to the world because it unravels the moment difficulty hits us. It may even keep some of us on the outside looking in when it comes to faith in God because we believe we have something And we're holding on to a counterfeit. Sometimes our responses, though, mimic the kind of joy that we want. Sometimes our happiness mimics the kind of joy that we want. And it can be confusing. Maybe there's a newborn baby in your home. Maybe you bought your first house. Maybe you got really good news uh, leading up to Christmas. And you're going to be able to buy a gift for someone that you really want to do. That's happiness. And there can be joy in that as it leads us to worship the Lord. But sometimes our circumstances in life mimic and create this happiness that mimics the joy that we want. Made me think of on Wednesdays when the mops ladies are here, mothers of preschoolers, they have kids. And so there's just dozens of kids roaming, the not roaming the building. They're in classrooms with teachers. Um, they're roaming in, in our classroom. Uh, Ricky and I help with the elementary kids. And so if we're doing a lesson of whatever we're doing, if there's an incentive, there we have a candy prize for what we're doing. It's amazing how they listen. It's amazing how they obey. It's amazing the excitement on their face, no matter what we're saying, whether it makes sense to them or not, they're excited. They participate. And so if you walk in at that moment, you might look at those kids and say, wow, They're really obedient. They're really well-behaved. Clearly, Nathan and Ricky have great command of this classroom. What looks like one thing, obedience, is actually a bunch of kids hoping to get sugar. It's self-serving pragmatism. And the way that you know that is because as soon as the candy goes away, the attitude changes. And so I might ask, if we as adults, are we any different? Are we any different? We talk to God when we need him. We obey when we want something from him. We're grateful when he's given us something, said yes. So how do we know? How do we know if we have pervasive joy? How do we know if we have circumstantial happiness? How do we know if we have Christian joy? How do we know if we just have the world's happiness? Shiny new truck. Well, one of the ways is, what do you do when the candy's taken away? What do you do when the carrot's gone? 
Who are you when life unravels? Who are you when things don't go your way? Kids don't obey. Family members don't move closer to you or closer to the Lord, but further from you, further from the Lord. Does your joy unravel? A boss can fire you, can't take your joy. Government can regulate you, raise the price of gas, but can't take your joy. Neighbor can annoy you, play music really loud late at night, but can't take your joy. Does your joy linger even when your circumstances fail? Another way is, does enjoying the gifts from the Lord, does enjoying good things in your life lead you to worship? Lead you to talk about Him, not about yourself. Lead you to talk about Him, not the gift. Does a newborn baby lead you to worship the one who gives life? John 1, 3. Does a new job, a better job, lead you to worship the Lord who is the one who gives us our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11, who supplies all our needs, Philippians 4, 19, or who delights in giving us good things, Matthew 7, 11. Does it linger? Does your joy linger when your circumstances unravel? Does it lead you to worship? Does it lead you to worship? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 16. Jesus is speaking with his followers in this passage, and their circumstances are about to unravel in the sense that he's about to leave them. He's about to go away. First, he's going to die, and then he's going to go back to be with the Father. And Jesus can see into their hearts. He understands what's going on, and he's preparing them for his plans to unfold, and he's going to speak clearly to their joy. We see in Hebrews 12, too, that all that Jesus does was for the joy set before him, the joy of the Lord, for our joy being reconciled to the Lord. And so we would expect that in some of Jesus' final moments with his followers, he's going to remind them what he's doing and what it's for. Uh, Let's pick it up, John 16. We'll read verses 16 through 22 together. John 16, 16 through 22. Jesus says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. Verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? Not the first time that they have been confused. A little while and you will not see me again. A little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? It's truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Jesus is talking to his followers, and he's about to leave them, and if you're in their shoes, Jesus leaving is not a good thing, right? Because you've been accused and you've been targeted by the religious leaders, by the authorities. And Jesus is the one who has done miracles. Jesus is the one who has always had a great response to these religious leaders. And now Jesus is going away. They must have felt like they were going to be left alone. And so they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't understand 
what he's doing. They don't understand what he's talking about. They don't like it. Jesus says, you're going to weep and lament. You're going to mourn. This is, you're not going to like this initially. Not only do they not understand that they don't like what they're hearing from Jesus. They don't like what his plans are to the degree that they can see them. And then not just that. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do for you immeasurable good. Your sorrow will turn to joy and it will be joy that no one can take away from you. Jesus is doing immeasurable good for them, but all they can see is today. All they can see is what they understand, what is before their eyes. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to looking around and not being sure, being confused about what God's doing, what his plans look like? It doesn't make sense. Not just not making sense. Can you relate to not liking them? Saying, God, I don't like what you're doing. Maybe you haven't verbalized it, but it did say Jesus knew their thoughts in their heart. So, don't understand, don't like. Can you relate to being fixated, preoccupied with what we can see today? Not the imagination, not God's understanding of what tomorrow is, how today is connected to tomorrow. All we can see is right now. You know, one of the evidences that we've been more shaped by culture than by God's word is our collective preoccupation and obsession with what's right now, with what we can see, what's right in front, with instant gratification. Uh, you know, more than 100 million people have signed up for Amazon Prime, which boasts two-day shipping. <laughs> in some markets, Amazon and Walmart do same-day shipping. I'll never forget Ian sitting by the door on a same-day shipping, watching the computer update of where the package was as it was on its way for same-day delivery. We want it now. Research shows that millennials, those in their 20s and 30s, have an attention span of about 12 seconds. The next generation, uh, labeled Generation Z, is down to about 8 seconds at least in a couple articles that I read, the comment was that a goldfish has about nine seconds. <laughs> Jesus describes joy as a fruit in Galatians 5, and don't fruit take time to grow? An apple takes 100 to 200 days to grow to harvest. Not only does it take time, but it needs the right environment, right? Calcium, zinc, nitrogen iron, maybe sunlight, needs an environment that is conducive to growth. All we can see sometimes is what's right in front of us, not the soil that the Lord is cultivating for fruit, not the time that it takes for a tree to grow and to bear fruit in season year over year, a healthier harvest. Now, Jesus hears their concern, and so we do see in verses 20 and 22 that he says, You're, you will weep and you will lament and you will have sorrow, but it will be turned to joy. And then in 22, he says, not just joy, but joy that no one can take away from you. Then he compares it to a woman who has given birth, and in a sense, the idea is the pain and suffering in your life right now, Jesus says to his followers, is like the pain of childbearing. And then once the child arrives, the joy of the child being there, uh, the excitement of the moment uh, causes most, probably except for the one who actually pushed the baby out, 
to forget the pain and the suffering, right? Because the joy supersedes, the joy is bigger than the pain that led to the joy. The pain is forgotten. Jesus says the joy is worth it. The sorrow is temporary. Salvation is forever. And so as we just back out to maybe 30,000 feet, uh, for some of us, the sorrow is not going to get better in this life. That's a tough reality for some of us. That loss, depression, addiction, uh, tragedy, there's not going to necessarily be this great sorrow uh, that just is totally and completely lifted and, and have whatever happy, ideal version of life that, that, that you might want. And for some of us, for all of us, this is going to be most fulfilled in heaven, fully fulfilled in heaven when we're reunited with Jesus, when we're in the presence of the Father. Um, but we want to believe We have to trust that when Jesus says your joy might be full, when Jesus says no one can take it from you, that we can have that joy in this life in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our pain, in spite of our own sins, in spite of some of the choices that we've made that have brought these difficult things even upon us. He says it's worth it. He says wait for it. It's good. Do you trust the Lord with your future? Do you trust the Lord with for your tomorrow? Do you trust the Lord for right now? Do you trust your, the Lord for the strained relationships? Do you trust the Lord for the things that aren't as you'd like them? What robs you of your joy? Is it something that you're holding on to that you haven't given to the Lord? Is it something that you want to control? You don't want to let the Lord control it? We see also that the Lord's joy is better than the world's happiness. Jesus is going to hear their response and he's going to go into some things and he's going to explain. He said, fine, I'll give you guys just a little bit more here. I want to tell you what's coming. I want to tell you what I'm going to do so that your joy may be full. And uh, earlier in the chapter, he's going to remind them that I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to bring back all of these things to your memory after I'm gone. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 23. I want you to see uh, that Jesus is going to say to his followers, one of the things that's going to happen from this that you're not going to like at the moment, but that you're going to get in a second, is unparalleled access to the Father. John 16, 23. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me, right? They've asked everything of Jesus to date. Jesus is the one that's been with them. Jesus is the one who calmed the storm. Jesus is the one that got in the boat with them. They've asked everything of Jesus to date. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Right? So they're going to have access to the Father, to go to directly through the Father, through the mediator of Jesus Christ. The access to the Father. You know, access is kind of a, is kind of a cool thing. Some of you have uh, military loved ones, loved ones serving in the military that are overseas right now. And one of the neat things that you'll see at halftimes of football games or on talk shows or in all sorts of different environments is uh, they'll fly a loved one back into the States. They'll have the family present in some sort of special position. uh, And the family thinks they just have the opportunity to have good football tickets or they get the opportunity to be in the front row at a talk show. And at some point in the show, they'll invite the family on stage. They'll ask them to share about their loved one, um, there'll be some sort of recognition, and then usually about that time, the camera pans back, and you see mom or dad in military fatigues walking behind them, the kids don't know what's coming, mom or dad or whoever's there doesn't know what's coming, and their loved one, who's been 15,000 miles away, is walking across the stage, and then at some point, the family turns around, 
and they're just overwhelmed. What once was someone who was so far away is now standing right in front of them, right? All the limitations to access are gone. And so as we think about Jesus talking to his followers, he's saying, you've had me, you've got to talk to me, but very soon you're going to get to go straight to the Father. And, and maybe that thinks of, makes us uh, remember the temple veil tearing, the divider of presence tearing uh, when Jesus died on the cross and this access to the Father that we have right now, not just perfectly forever in heaven, but this increased access, closest access to the Father at any point in history since the fall, right now. God's not a CEO at the top of the tallest building who's inaccessible to employees. He's chosen to come near. doesn't live behind a gate with armed guards. He's accessible. You know, when uh, our oldest was born, he was in intensive care for a week. We couldn't go in to see him without changing clothes and washing up. We had to clean up in order to go see him. One of the great things about our access with the Father is we don't have to clean everything up about our life to go into the presence of the Father. Uh, right where we're at, we can speak to Him. Right where we're at, we can talk to Him. Right where we're at, we can hear from Him. We don't have to clean everything up, right? Most religions of the world say, clean everything up and maybe you'll get the Lord's favor. Right? Christianity says, no, no, you can't. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't put on special clothes and you can't clean your hands. There's not enough antibacterial soap in the world to clean yourself up spiritually to come into the presence of the Father. And Jesus says, I'm doing that for you guys right now. Right now. We have Christian joy because we have unparalleled access to the Father. Uh, let's pick it up verse 24. Uh, Jesus is going to say, not just this access to the Father, but I'm going to be doing all things for your joy. The creator of the universe is going to be doing all things for your joy. Verse 24 says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, we know that this is not a Santa Claus passage where we, we put all of our requests on a wish list and send it to the North Pole. Jesus is saying, because... Uh, Usually our requests are are for ourselves, for our kingdom, not his, for our will, not for his. Um, But Jesus is saying, ask what you will and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Can you get your minds around the idea that the creator of the universe actually cares about your joy right now? Not just future joy in heaven forever, but your joy right now. Your ability to be anchored in who he is, to see and to savor his beauty in the word and in life and in our salvation, such that there is a pervasive joy that sweeps over circumstances, sweeps over difficulty, and it doesn't belittle or bemean the difficulty in our lives. It just elevates our view of what we have in salvation, what Jesus made possible for us on the cross. Not just answering prayer for our joy, not just circumstances that the Lord is actively working in, allowing things, prohibiting things for our joy. James 1, 2 through 4 says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Even in our trials, even in the most difficult things in our life, we can understand that there's an invitation there for joy. Probably everyone in here has a family that you can think of and you say, I wouldn't dare tell them count it all joy in their trials. I know, I know what they're going through. I wouldn't dare do that. Again, it's not belittling or bemeaning the difficulty in our lives, right? The, uh, those oppressed with addiction, those oppressed with depression, those oppressed who have dealt with incredible levels of loss and tragedy, 
We don't want to belittle any of that. We want to say that in all things, we have an invitation to cling to the immovable rock. Jesus says, I will work all things for your joy. Not just you have access to the Father, disciples, but I will be actively working out all things for your joy. Now, most of you know that virtually all of the disciples uh, died, were martyred. After Jesus dies, after Jesus rises again, after he goes back up to the Father, they scatter. They become missionaries to the ends of the globe. Most of them lose their life, and the various accounts of how they did that show joy even in martyrdom, as some are recorded as singing in their death. Uh, One was crucified, and he said, I don't even want to be crucified because that's how Jesus died, turned the cross upside down. I don't even deserve to die the same way that my Savior dies. Incredible joy to, to the end of their days, in the midst of some awful days, they had learned what it meant to cling to the immovable rock. Let's pick back up in verse 25. Not just access to the Father, not just creator of the universe advocating for our joy, we get the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, 26, 27, and 28. Jesus says, These things I have said to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came to the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and I am going to the Father. And then jumping backwards to verse 12 and 13, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are yet to come. Jesus says, it's going to get clearer. It's going to make sense. And you're going to need the Holy Spirit for it to make sense. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to make sense of life. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to walk daily in faithfulness. Sometimes we think that following Jesus is like one of those obstacle course races. Maybe you've seen Tough Mudder or Spartan Race and all these incredibly fit individuals doing really ridiculous things that no one else can do, uh, but it's survival of the fittest, right? Only the strongest make it across uh, the finish line. And so the sense we have from Scripture is we get the Holy Spirit. It's not a survival of the fittest kind of a thing. It's a we cling to the immovable rock and the Holy Spirit does the work. Uh, Romans 5.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So by the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. So when we talk about Christian disciplines, scripture reading, prayer, when we talk about things here that are hopefully useful to help us together to seek the Lord, to fall in love with Him, to pursue Him, to be responsive to Him, the hope is, is that what we're doing is pushing us towards the Spirit. We're hoping that we're surrounding ourselves who are also following the Spirit and that we might follow the Spirit with them and that their example might encourage us. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Life is not an obstacle course race. It is not a Spartan. It is not a tough mutter. It is not survival of the fittest. Our job is to cling to the immovable rock. 
Last, from verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, The hour is coming. You are going to weep. You are going to mourn. You are going to be scattered. Verse 33, But take heart. I have overcome the world. Verse 33 says, But take heart. I have overcome the world. Why do we have joy? We got picked for the winning team. Why do we have joy? Jesus has overcome the world. Why do we not fear what can happen to us? Why do we not fear government? Why do we not feel fear uh, the presence of evil and culture? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Why are good things happening in Nocatee, Alaska? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Steve's a great guy. Good things are happening because Jesus has overcome the world. Uh, Interesting, if you do a search of Jesus' words there, he says, but take heart. And so that phrase appears in the New Testament at least six or seven times. And all but one occasion, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's something that we're asked, instructed, told to do. And in all of those instances where that phrase appears, uh, it centers around three different things. It says, take heart or be of good cheer or have courage. One, because of the plans of God. Because the plans of God are coming to fruition in front of us. Not just that. Take heart, have courage, be of good cheer because of the presence of God. And last, because of the power of God. I'll read just a couple. Uh, Acts 23.11 and Acts 27.22, we see both of those phrases. The Lord speaking to Paul. The ship is going down, and the Lord says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness of me in Rome. And in the Acts 27, 22, Be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. In other words, Paul, be of good cheer. My plans are marching forward, even though to you it looks like they're sinking. We have joy because of the plans of God being fulfilled in our midst. We have joy because of his presence. Mark 6.50 says, Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. You remember when Jesus' followers were out and they're in the boat and the waves are coming and Jesus walks on the water and gets in the boat and the wave stops. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It is I. Where in your life do you need to hear from the Lord? Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. I'm here. Same thing is written in Matthew 14.27. Not just his plans, not just his presence, but his power. Matthew 9, 2 records when the, Jesus is teaching and the paralytic man is, is brought into him and Jesus heals the man. He says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Take courage, have hope. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. The power of Jesus to forgive sins. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. John 16:33 be of good cheer i have overcome the world i don't know how you've interacted with these different themes the last 3 weeks and next week we have love and then on christmas eve at 4 and at 6 uh, we'll finish with christ um, you can come away from these themes and think wow my life doesn't look anything like that I could tell you the 15 different times this week where I was absolutely without joy, including having to go to Fred Meyer at about 5.30 on Friday night to jump a car. 
that I knew had a bad battery. And so you can come away from these things and go, wow, I just don't measure up. Wow. C-team Christian right here. How long have I been saved? Or you can come away and you can say, I can't believe I have a God that wants this for me. I can't believe that this is what Jesus died for, to bring these things for me. That when Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured all these things uh, willingly, joyfully, knowing what it would bring for me. And so what do I see in my life and heart? I see evidences of these things, hope, peace, joy, but that I see a frailty to them. Right? I see that sometimes they are, they are weakened or uh, they disappear from a person's comments, from undesirable circumstances, from a season of difficulty. And Jesus died for more than that, for a pervasive, abiding, deep joy that goes beyond our circumstances, beyond worldly happiness, that Christian joy, as I see and as I savor Christ and my salvation and his beauty in the word and in the world in spite of what's going on around me. Don't want to belittle what's going on in our lives. We want to elevate God. Don't want to belittle our difficulties. Want to elevate His power. Don't want to belittle our circumstances. Want to marvel at what's available to us in Christ because Jesus took our punishment, Jesus took our penalty upon Himself so that when we follow Him by faith, The Father looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ. We have the Spirit of God in us cultivating soil that is ripe for harvest. Doing work over time. If it takes 200 days for an apple, how much time does it take for our hope, our peace, our joy to to grow, to be abiding, to be deep, to be mature? Hopefully together we can press into the Lord, cling to the immovable rock, and follow His Spirit together. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You want more for me than I want for me. I thank You, Lord, that You know what's possible that exceeds my expectations and are patient with me in spite of the time I spent chasing, pursuing, and dreaming of counterfeits. Thank you, Lord, that with the disciples' questions and their curiosity, Jesus was patient. Lord, with our slow-moving faith, with our perpetual setbacks, Father, you are patient. Lord, fill us today not with a sense of all of the ways that we're broken and lacking. Fill us with a sense of what you want for us, Lord, and By your spirit, may we desire, may we see your beauty, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of salvation as surpassing of all other beauties. Lord, joy in our position as part of your family, as surpassing of happiness that any person or thing could bring us. 
Lord, as we go about our week, as we uh, prepare for Christmas, Lord, and then there's so many special and sweet moments in that. Lord, may each gift lead us to worship the giver. Lord, we confess idolatry, we confess greed, we confess all sorts of things. Lord, may each gift lead us to worship you, the giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.